can be found uh, in Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning to read at verse 7, and it's uh, page 792 in the Church Bibles. Jeremiah 31, verse 7. This is what the Lord says. Sing with joy for Jacob. Shout for the foremost of the nations. Make your praises heard and say, Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Hear the word of the Lord, you nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Then young women will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priest with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that by your Holy Spirit you have given us the scriptures and I thank you that that same spirit is the interpreter of your scriptures too. And so I pray that you'd send your spirit now that um, as we open your word you would lead us to love the Lord Jesus more and serve him more faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you've ever started watching a TV program or a film partway through. If you're watching with other people, that's the point where you become the most annoying person in the room because it's, who's that, or what just happened, or why did that happen? To use a slightly different analogy, if you like reading long novels, you might have had the experience of having to flick back to remind yourself of something that happened earlier. Because something happens and you haven't grasped who a character is or you haven't grasped something that happened earlier. 
Understanding the whole story is so important for understanding any particular part of a story. And actually, the same is true when we come to read the Bible. It's very easy to come to Scripture and just pick the bits we quite like that bless us with little regard for how it fits into the big picture of God and his people. And it's particularly easy to do that with a passage like our passage today. We're we're in Jeremiah 31 because we're following the lectionary readings for a few weeks, the readings the Church of England is reading at the moment. And so we find ourselves in the middle of Jeremiah quite randomly. And so it could be quite easy to come to this passage and just read it as a nice little pick-me-up about how God will save his people. But actually, there's so much more going on here if we would just pay attention to the bigger picture, the bigger story. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of being somewhere where you felt you really didn't belong. If you've ever moved house and moved to a new area, you might have had that experience where, you know, after the first few weeks of living in a place, you feel like this really isn't home, and yet you know deep down that from now on it is. Or maybe you've had the experience of going to a social gathering where you only know one or two people and you're sat there thinking, why am I here? Those are only quite mild examples of that feeling of dislocation. Can you imagine then being forcibly removed from the place where you live and being forced to resettle in a culture that is completely different to your own? being moved to a place where the language is different, where the religion is different, away from all that you know and all that makes you comfortable and all that you have built your life upon. This is the situation that God's people find themselves in in the middle of the book of Jeremiah. They're exiles. If we look at the big story of the Old Testament, we see that God chose a people out of the nations to be in special relationship with him. He gave them a land, a prosperous land, and he gave them the privilege of being in special relationship with him and being a light to the nations around. And yet we read the Old Testament and we see that these people were constantly rebellious. They failed to trust in God's goodness and constantly rejected his rule. A bit like us, actually. And so in the time of Jeremiah, God's patience finally runs out. And the Babylonians come, they sack Jerusalem, and they carry off the upper strata of society, off to resettle them in Babylon as exiles. What's the point of exile? Well, the reason they did it was to destroy the identity of the people they were conquering. If you carried off these Jews and resettled them in Babylon as Babylonians... The whole point was to make them Babylonians so that they would no longer want to rebel. And yet we come to Jeremiah 31 and we still find words of hope, even in the midst of this very desperate situation. Because even though it's very clear that this didn't happen by chance, it's God's judgment that sends the people off into exile. We still read in Jeremiah 31 that there is hope for a future generation There is hope that a remnant will be able to return to the land and be able to return to that special relationship they were supposed to have with God. But there's a slight problem when we come to read these verses. 
And that is that the promises don't seem to match the historical reality of what we know happened. If you're familiar with Ezekiel and Nehemiah, you'll know that a little bit later on, some of the Jews were allowed to return to the land. They were allowed to return and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And yet the problem is that if you go read Ezekiel and Nehemiah and read what actually happened and compare that to these promises in Jeremiah 31, well, the promises seem well overstated. And it's not just Jeremiah that has this problem. I don't have time to give you lots of examples, but in preparation for this, I looked at lots of the prophets, and particularly Isaiah. There are all these promises of return that are massive, and yet they don't seem to match what actually happened very well. Let me give you some examples from our reading then in Jeremiah. We heard in our reading, they will sorrow no more. Now, do you imagine that once the exiles returned, they were never sad anymore? If you read Ezekiel, you, you find that actually, even once the temple has been rebuilt, some of the exiles weep because the splendor of the new temple is nothing compared to the old one. Let me give you another example. We heard in our reading, the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. Well, that doesn't really seem to fit either. Because once the exiles returned, they were still ruled by other people. They were still ruled by the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans. They were never really free from the hand of those stronger than they. So we're a little bit stuck, aren't we? We have all these wonderful promises that were at best only partly fulfilled. Could it be that God did not fulfill his promises? What do we do with that? Well, could it be that these promises point beyond the historical reality of the land and the exiles? Could it be that these promises are also for a new Israel and another set of exiles? In the New Testament, we read of another set of exiles. The Apostle Peter addresses his fellow believers as foreigners and exiles and strangers we read at the start of the letter of 1 Peter, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Who are these exiles then? Well, in a narrow sense, Peter's writing to a group of churches in Asia, but it doesn't seem illegitimate to apply this to all Christians. We get this sense in the New Testament that all Christians are exiles. How can that be then? Christians haven't been removed from the place where they live and carried off somewhere else. Well, actually, this theme of exile runs much deeper in the scriptures. When we read the whole storyline of the Bible, we kind of see that actually all human beings are exiles from Eden. We see that we were made for fellowship with God. We were made to be in his place and to serve him. And that leads to his blessing. And yet we also see that because of sin, we're in exile. Sin leads to exile in a couple of ways. 
Firstly, it leads to broken relationship. We see that it leads to broken relationship with God and broken relationship with other people. And that's a kind of exile. But also, and perhaps more obviously, it leads to a physical exile. We read in Genesis 3 about the curse, and after the curse, the effects of sin on the world, we see that human beings are no longer in Eden. They're no longer in God's place. They can still have fellowship with him by his grace, but we're no longer in that perfect place anymore. And so we see that the curse leads to a physical exile. We end up living in this world of sin and death where we suffer mortality. And yet still we read in Jeremiah that there is hope of return. So what does Jeremiah 31 tell us about this return? You might want to have the passage open in front of you. Well, firstly, we read then in verse 8. See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. The point there is God will gather his people from wherever they are. That might not seem uh, very exciting, but actually, it can be easy to feel like God has forgotten us. We live in a culture that's becoming increasingly hostile towards Christianity, and it can feel like we are the few who are left. It can feel like, what is God doing? And yet the point of these verses is that history is not just one thing after another. We're not just at the mercy of whatever happens to go on. It is leading somewhere. God will one day intervene and gather his people from wherever they are, even if they are the few left in a culture that's turning its back on God. So who will be among these people then? Well, we read a bit further on in verse 8. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labour. A great throng will return. We read there then that a great number of people will return, a great throng. But they're not the people who look that impressive, It's not the people who've got it all sorted. It's the blind, it's the lame, it's the expectant mothers. And this is not just hope for those people literally. It's hope for all people who admit that they are a mess and they need God's help. When the world looks at Christians and mocks them as fools, we shouldn't be that surprised. And yet we so often are. We've become so used to being respectable in the eyes of society that maybe we've lost sight a little bit of the fact that God says that his people aren't going to look that impressive. It's this collection of messed up people who God chooses to save. What do we learn then about the place where God will lead these people to? Well, it's all about new creation. We see again that we look at the big storyline of the Bible and God's promise is that one day he will make all things new. He will remake this world without sin and without the effects of death and suffering. And so we read in uh, in our passage of what this is going to be like. We read in verse 9, they will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I'm Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Again, verse 12, we read, they will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. 
They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine and the olive oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden and they will sorrow no more. This is all language of abundance. It's language of new creation. Streams of water. New wine and olive oil. It's about a place of abundance. It's about a place where we will no longer live in want. You may think, well, actually, most of us don't struggle to get by, so do we really live in want right now? We live in quite a prosperous society. And yet there's still a very real sense in which this world fails to satisfy our deepest needs. That manifests itself in various ways. We all, we all live for something, and yet so often we live for the wrong things. It might be that it manifests itself as living for the weekend. What is it that gets you through the week? Maybe it's that day off. And yet you always find that when that day off comes around, it's not as good as you expected it to be. It fails to satisfy. Or maybe it's that, that dream holiday that you've got booked at the end of the year. Maybe that's what gets you through. And yet so often when that holiday comes along again, it's not as good as you expected it to be. It fails to satisfy. Maybe it's that promotion. Maybe you think, if only I could get that job, then I'd be content. Or that new house. You know, if only I could afford to build that dream house, then I'd be content, then I'd be satisfied. And yet, the bitter sting is that, as many of us know, even, even when we get the dream, it fails to satisfy And yet the promise of God in these verses is that he can satisfy us because we were created to be satisfied in him. So let me read you again some of those promises of the abundance of new creation. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine and the olive oil. The promise of God is that in new creation, we won't live in want at all. We will be totally satisfied in him. And actually, the wonderful thing is that for us as Christians, we can know some of that satisfaction now, even, in just in being able to have fellowship with God and know him, even while we wait for its fullness in new creation. But there's still a problem. I don't know if you noticed it, because verse 9 says they will come with weeping. What's that all about then? This is a wonderful promise of return from exile, so why will they return with weeping? Well, actually, I think it's because there's a cost to returning from exile. The cost is our pride. Just as the Israelites ended up in exile because they constantly rejected God's loving rule, We've done the same thing. We've made ourselves God of our own lives. And we can't return from exile while we are doing that. We can't return from exile while we are still on the throne. The cost of returning from exile then is repentance. And that's what this weeping is about. It's the weeping of repentance. It's the weeping of surrendering to God's rule. How then, how can there be a way back from exile? 
We read in verse 11, For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. The point is, we might realise that we don't belong in this world. We might realise that we're exiles. But that doesn't help us because we're still stuck here. We still live in this world. We still suffer and ultimately we'll still suffer death. The only way there is any way back from exile is for God to do something, for God to intervene. And thankfully he has. That's what this verse tells us. The New Testament tells us that through Christ we've been redeemed from that curse that puts us in exile. That curse that puts us out of Eden. And so the wonderful news is that you can be assured that if you're trusting in Christ today, you really are a citizen of this new creation. You really are a citizen of heaven. And your real home is a world made new. A world free of sin and death. A world where the Lord will satisfy every hunger and need. So finally then, given that we're exiles, what does this mean then for how we should live right now? Well, there's all sorts that could be said about that, but I think the one thing that comes out of our passage is in verse 7. In verse 7 we read, Sing with joy for Jacob, shout for the foremost of the nations. Make your praises heard and say, Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. We're told there to sing. Why? Well, what do exiles do in order to stop themselves losing their identity to the place where they are exiles? When you're an exile, everything you encounter every day is trying to tell you a story about who you are and about reality. Everything you watch on telly, everything you read, everything you listen to on the radio. And it's all telling you a different story to the one that God is telling. And so what are we told to do? We're told to sing of God's promises. This isn't just about singing, it's about retelling of God's promises all the time. That's what exiles do. To remind themselves of God's story, to remind themselves of their true identity. And so my final challenge I leave you with then is, how do we do that? How do we do that individually? How do we do that corporately? How do we better remind ourselves constantly that we don't belong in this world, that we are God's people, we are exiles and strangers on our way to the promised land? I don't have an answer to that, so that's something for you to go away and think about. Amen.